Uh, we're going to be back in, in Colossians this morning, so if you go ahead and turn there, we're going to pick up where we left off. If you're using a blue Bible we provide, it's on page 983. So our text this morning is going to be verses 24 to 29. Last time we looked at verses 21 and 23 in which Paul spoke of the Colossian Christians' personal reconciliation to God through Christ. Paul said they were once alienated from God and hostile in their thinking towards God. And this was evidenced by their evil deeds. And same could be said of every one of you. But they were now reconciled to God through Christ in order that they would be presented as holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Now, as as Paul reminded them in verse 23, the point at which they experienced this reconciliation to God, the point at which they were reconciled, the point at which God the Father delivered them from the domain of darkness and the power of sin and brought them into the spiritual life and freedom that are found under the kingly rule of Christ, that is when they believe the gospel and place their faith in Jesus Christ. And so it is true of every sinner. According to the gospel, it's by grace alone that one is saved through faith alone in who? In Christ alone. In Christ alone. And so Paul urged the Colossians and warned them in verse 23 to continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. He said, not shifting from the hope of this gospel. The gospel, we could say, is is the gateway to Christ. It's the good news concerning who he is and what he has done in order to bring sinners to God. That's reconciliation. And it shows us how we are to come to him on his terms in order that we may receive through him forgiveness of sins and eternal life. So think about that. The gospel essentially tells us how we are to come to God on his terms, and how we are to come to Christ, who will reconcile us to God, how we are to come to him on his terms. Many people will place their faith in Christ, but not truly understand the gospel. They'll place their faith in Christ on their terms. So Paul reminds them, of the centrality of the gospel, the importance of the gospel, and the importance of remaining in that hope of this gospel. And Paul says in verse 23 to the Colossians, this is the gospel that you heard. So he's already said that in his letter. This is the gospel that you heard, the gospel that is being proclaimed throughout the world, and I am a minister of this gospel. A servant of Christ, commissioned as an apostle, an authoritative representative of Christ with the task of making it known, proclaiming it, explaining it, and upholding it. Paul is a minister of the gospel. And so this brings us to the next section of Paul's letter, verses 24 to 29. Paul had spoken of the work of God in reconciliation, and in these verses what we're going to see is him speak of his activity as a minister of reconciliation. In this passage, Paul explains to the Colossians 
his ongoing work and as apostle of Jesus Christ in the ministry of the gospel. Hence the title, The Ongoing Work of Gospel Ministry. So let's read it. Paul writes this, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known. The mystery, hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So it's important for us to note what comes before and after this passage. And when we study the scriptures, we want to read it in context. Read whatever passage we're looking at in context. And we consider what comes before and after to help us better understand it. Before this passage, as we had just said, Paul had warned the Colossians to continue in the faith, being stable and steadfast, and not shifting from the hope of the gospel. So he had given them this warning to persevere, to continue in the hope of the gospel, in the faith. And then he writes here in this passage about his gospel ministry for their sake. And then right after this passage, here's what he says, in, starting in chapter 2, the first couple verses. For... I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged. So Paul had warned the Colossians that the expectation of being presented holy and blameless and above reproach before God in the end was contingent upon their persevering in the faith and in the hope of the gospel until the end. However, Paul was not seeking by this warning to cast doubt on their faith, but to encourage them in their faith. And I believe that's what he's seeking to accomplish by writing this section of the letter we're looking at. Aside from just informing them about the nature of his ministry as, an, as the apostle to the Gentiles. So it wasn't just to just give them information about his ministry, to tell them what his work, the nature of his work, but it was actually by doing that to provide them some encouragement. I think that's the intent of why he's writing these things in this passage in verses 24 to 29. And as we work through this text, we're going to see Paul, he really points to five aspects of his gospel ministry as an apostle that would together and encourage together encourage the Colossians to persevere in the faith and continue in the hope of the gospel. So he points to his ministry, the work of his gospel ministry, these five aspects of this ministry, so that they would be encouraged to persevere and continue in the faith. And this is for our encouragement as well. Paul points to the cost, the focus, the task, 
the goal and the effort of his gospel ministry. Those are the five right there. And just so you know, we're just going to cover the first two of these. We'll pick it up next time. Just due to time constraints, uh, instead of rushing through, we'll take our time working through these points. So we'll cover the first two this morning, and the next time we'll pick up the rest. So Paul begins telling them of the cost of his gospel ministry. Look at verse 24. He writes this, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. So what does Paul mean when he says, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Does that strike you as odd? You might wonder, what does he mean by that? Well, he's not in any way suggesting that there is some sort of deficiency in Christ's redemptive work on our behalf, which Christ accomplished through his suffering and death on the cross in our place for our sins. He's not speaking of that. He's not saying that he is somehow contributing to Christ's work of atonement on our behalf. Paul's already stated in his letter that in Christ we have redemption. We have the forgiveness of sins because of the peace that Christ established between us and God through his suffering and death on the cross for our sins. The work is finished. And Paul just said in verse 22 that by means of Christ's suffering and death on the cross, the Colossians are now reconciled to God, not almost reconciled. So Paul is not saying that he is contributing to Christ's redemptive work, to his redemptive, uh, his act of, of suffering on our behalf and his death on our behalf. So what does he mean when he says that in his flesh, he's filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Well, he means that at the hands of the world, which is hostile to Christ, he's receiving afflictions that are ultimately intended for Christ, and would have fallen upon Christ if Christ were still present on the earth. So let's remember what Jesus said about the cost of discipleship in general. He said this to his disciples, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Now, although Christ is ascended in heaven, the afflictions of his people who are said to be members of his body, are also said to be his afflictions as well. When his people are afflicted, he is afflicted. For we are members of his body. If you recall Paul's former way of life, he used to go by the name of Saul. He was Saul of Tarsus. He was a zealous persecutor of Christians. That was his former way of life. And when the risen Christ confronted him on the road to Damascus, he said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He was persecuting the church. 
men and women, Christians, and Christ in his glory confronts him and says, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said to him, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And then after Saul's conversion, the Lord appointed him to be one of his apostles. And the Lord said of him, of Saul, who later became known as Paul, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So this was the beginning of Paul's gospel ministry. Sufferings and afflictions were going to be part of it. And over time, as Paul carried out his duty as an apostle of Jesus Christ, he experienced, in his own words, weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. More specifically, in his second letter to the church at Corinth, Paul said that he had to endure beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, and hunger. And compared to others, Paul had to endure, as he writes in this letter to the Corinthians, he had to endure far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times, he says, I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods, and once I was stoned. And by the way, we read of that in Acts. He was stoned by a mob and they drug him outside the city. They thought he was dead and just chucked him. But the Lord preserved his life. So Paul endured such afflictions because of, why? Because he just wasn't a likable guy? Because he was ugly? No. He endured such afflictions because of his relentlessness in the ministry of the gospel. That was the offense. That is, proclaiming the gospel and and making disciples of Jesus Christ. He was relentless at this. So Paul, who used to vehemently persecute the church and afflict the church, was enduring affliction now for the sake of the church. Now notice, Paul does not simply say that it is for the church in general that he endures sufferings and afflictions in Colossians. But he says that it is specifically for the Colossians' sake as well. For your sake, he says. So again, when he says, for your sake, and then he's saying it's on behalf of the church, it's not, okay, well, since he's suffering for the church, by by, wave application, it applies to you as well, Colossians. No, he makes it personal up front. He says, I'm suffering for your sake. How so? Do you remember the situation? Do you remember how the church came about in Colossae? The Colossians, according to what we read in this letter, it indicates that they they hadn't met Paul. They hadn't met him. They had actually learned the gospel from Epaphras, who was one of them, not from Paul. And from what we can tell, it it was Epaphras who actually planted the church at Colossae. So how was it then that Paul could say that he's enduring sufferings for their sake? Well, we must remember that although the Colossians hadn't met Paul, 
They hadn't. Uh, They were certainly beneficiaries of his ministry. Yes, they had learned the gospel from Epaphras, but who do you think Epaphras learned the gospel from? Where did he learn this gospel? He had learned it from Paul, most likely during the time of Paul's two-year stay at Ephesus. In the book of Acts, we read that Paul reasoned with the local disciples daily in Ephesus for that two-year period, over the course of two years, he reasoned daily. And this resulted in all the residents of Asia, the scripture says, both Jews and Greeks, hearing the word of the Lord. And this would have included Epaphras, who then took that word to his hometown of Colossae. Now, judging from what Paul says in some of his other letters and from what we also read in the book of Acts, Paul had to endure while he was in Ephesus, much adversity and affliction in order to remain there and to teach there for so long, to teach the word of the Lord there over the course of two years, daily. While Paul was in Ephesus, he wrote his first letter to the church at Corinth in which he said the following, But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, And there are many adversaries. So we read the book of Acts. We see he stays there for two years. We don't really, we're going to fill in some of the details we see here that actually this is a a door of opportunity for the gospel. He's staying there. He's committed. And by the way, there are many adversaries. The work is going to be hard. And in Acts chapter 19, we see that this adversity came to a head when a local pagan silversmith incited riots and stirred up the entire city against Paul. And when Paul later recounted his time at Ephesus in his second letter to the church at Corinth, he wrote the following, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. You know how many times Paul's ministry, he was thinking, well, this is it. This is it. The Lord said he was going to suffer for his name, but, and the Lord kept sustaining him, preserving him. Clearly, from what we've seen, Paul had to endure sufferings during his time in Ephesus. But here's the thing. Enduring those sufferings, is what it took for him to keep up his gospel ministry in Ephesus. That's what it took. That was the cost. And this resulted in the word of the Lord spreading throughout all Asia. It resulted in Epaphras' conversion and subsequently the Colossians' conversion. Therefore, Paul could say that his sufferings were for their sake. And because his sufferings in the ministry of the gospel were not in vain, but were necessary sacrifices in paving the way for Epaphras and the Colossians and many others in coming to Christ. Paul says what? He was rejoicing in them. He was rejoicing in them. No regrets. Even in his current imprisonment, by the way, he's writing to the Colossians and he's he's imprisoned. He wrote this letter to them while he was under house arrest in Rome. He was chained to a Roman soldier. Even in these current difficult, difficult circumstances of his, he was rejoicing because, guess what? 
It provided him the opportunity to learn of their situation from Epaphras and to write to them this letter that is full of rich doctrine and wise instruction for their benefit. So his current circumstances, being imprisoned as he was, opened the door of opportunity for him to write this letter in the first place, to benefit them even more. And guess what? It was for our benefit as well. Are we not reading this same letter? All of Paul's hardship that led up to the writing of this letter is still paying off today. Nearly 2,000 years later, it's still tremendously benefiting and edifying the church. He had to endure suffering to get to that point. So if it is certain that as followers of Jesus Christ, we will, in one way or another, suffer for the sake of his name, isn't Paul's perseverance through his afflictions for our sake and for the glory of Christ and encouragement for us to persevere ourselves? We see his example. Isn't it encouragement for us to continue in the faith and not shift from the hope of the gospel, looking all that he had to go through, all that he endured, the Lord sustained him. He was faithful to the end. It would encourage us to be faithful as well, to know that even in the face of suffering, that we might continue in the faith. So there's the encouragement. And we even see how Paul points to his example as an apostle, how it's to benefit us, how it's to benefit the church and encourage us. In 2 Corinthians, he writes, If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it's for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. By the way, I don't think anyone will ever suffer to the extent that the Apostle Paul did. He's probably the Christian who, you know, who endured the most suffering for the sake of Christ, and he paved the way and set the example for us so that we might, when we experience affliction and suffering, we would be encouraged and comforted. His faith didn't fail. Neither were ours. If we're clinging to Christ. And in Philippians, Paul writes this, another similar example of how his affliction and suffering is to be an encouragement to our hearts. He writes, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened by, in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign of them for their destru- of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Did you know that that was a gift? Suffering is a gift. It's been granted to you not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. See, he's pointing to his example of suffering for Christ's sake and for the sake of his people. So, back to our text in Colossians then. We've seen Paul point to the cost of his gospel ministry. And he does so as an encouragement to the Colossians to persevere in the faith and in the hope of the gospel. Now we'll look at the second aspect of his ministry that he points to, and that's the focus of his gospel ministry. And we see that in verses 25 to 27. 
He writes, of which, and he's speaking of the church, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. But first of all, Paul says that he is a minister of or servant of the church. He's a minister or servant of the gospel. He is a minister or servant of the church as well. And that this ministry was according to the stewardship from God that was given him. It was a divine appointment. And what he's referring to here is his divine commissioning as an apostle, specifically as the leading apostle to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. Paul states in his letter to the Galatians that, that God had called him by his grace and revealed his son to him in order that he would preach him among the Gentiles. In Acts 26, Paul recounted the charge the Lord Jesus had given to him. And when he confronted him on the road to Damascus, the Lord said this, I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me, and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins in a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That's the charge of his ministry. And this passage here is helpful in us understanding what Paul's referring to back in our text in Colossians when he says that his stewardship as a servant of the church was to make the word of God fully known. That statement. This statement literally says in the Greek that it was to fulfill or complete the word of God. To fulfill or complete the word of God. And one commentator says this, the word of God is fulfilled not simply when it is preached in the world, but when it is dynamically and effectively proclaimed in the power of the Spirit throughout the world and accepted by men of faith. The Lord told Paul that he would, through Paul, open people's eyes so that they would turn from the power of Satan to God and receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in him. He didn't say, I might, just preach the word. He says, you're going to take the gospel of the Gentiles, and through your preaching, I am going to open people's eyes. I am going to reconcile sinners to God. I'm going to save men and women. So that's what it means to complete to fulfill the word of God. His task was not to just make it known, but to make it known so that it would take effect in the lives of those whom God chose to save before the foundation of the world. And Paul refers to the word of God entrusted to him and uh, as, in verse 26, he says this, he refers to it as the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. So right after he says, to complete the word of God, then he says, the mystery, hidden for ages, but now 
revealed to the saints. In other words, it was an aspect of God's plan that God had kept hidden from everyone up until the present time, up until the first century. That's what it means when it was a mystery. I mean, beforehand, it was not known. There was a mystery. It was only known to God. And then at this present time, it had become known. It was newly revealed truth from God. Paul says in verse 27 that this mystery, that what God has chosen to make known to his people in the present time is something that is especially glorious among the Gentiles. So what is this mystery that's been revealed? And Paul says, what does he say? It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. In other words, he's saying it is the reality that Christ not only grants forgiveness of sins and reconciles to God those who believe in him, but he is saying that Christ also, through the Holy Spirit, lives within them and secures their hope of eternal glory. That was previously unknown. The full nature of the saving work of Jesus Christ and how that would be affected for those who believe. Through faith in Jesus, Israel's Messiah, not only the Jews, but Gentiles also, the nations have the life of Christ reigning within him, within them, those who believe on him. A few verses later in, in chapter 2, verse 2, Paul broadens the definition of this mystery that he had been entrusted with, this newly revealed truth of God, to, to really being Christ himself. That is, the fullness of the reality of salvation through faith in him. Now, if you look in the Old Testament, you see the prophets declare foretell the coming of the Messiah, one who would save people, you know, the, the, the Redeemer, the coming one. There, there were things made known about him that he would bring his people to God. But the fullness of the reality of salvation through faith in him had, had still been kept hidden. And now God had made it fully known. And this is what Paul is declaring to them. So Christ himself is the focus of Paul's ministry. Paul says in his letter to the Christians at Ephesus that he was made a minister of the gospel according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to him to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So how would all of this be an encouragement to the Colossians and to us? this focus in his ministry? How would this encourage us to persevere in the faith and the hope of the gospel? And I would say such a focus on Christ is a reminder that there's nothing greater than him. I mean, did Paul have a higher calling? Did he have a greater task? Christ was the focus of his ministry. There was nothing else. There was nothing greater. Remember, Paul had just explained, we looked at verses 15 to 20, he just explained that Christ is preeminent over the entire universe, that all things were created in him and through him and for him, and that he holds all things together. No amount of philosophy or worldly wisdom or man-made traditions or religious devotion or subjective spiritual experiences can top that. Which, by the way, as we move along the letter, we'll see that there are people trying to influence the Colossians, these false teachers, 
Telling them how to be more spiritual, more connected to God through these superficial ways. And Paul says, no, my focus is Christ. So for you who have believed on Christ, who is God, who is the eternal Son, Paul says he dwells within you. He is your ransom before God. He is your reconciliation to God, and he is your hope of glory. So, so far we've looked at just two aspects of Paul's ministry in the gospel. We looked at the cost, suffering for Christ. We looked at the focus, which is Christ himself. And next time we're going to Look at the other three aspects. We're going to look at the task of his ministry, the goal of gospel ministry, and the effort in it. Again, that we might be encouraged to continue in the faith and not shift from the hope of the gospel, this glorious truth that Paul has proclaimed. Now, he said in his ministry that he, he, his, his effort was to make the, known the full counsel of God. He proclaimed the truth of God from the Scriptures Old Testament all the way through. All of God's word is God-breathed, is profitable. All of it is headed to one focal point, and that is Jesus Christ. And Paul says, is your salvation, is your hope of glory, is your sufficiency before God. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as Paul intended for the Colossians, that we too might be encouraged from what we have seen in this passage. Looking to Paul's example, not to exalt and elevate Paul himself, but so that we might exalt and elevate Christ. The one who is the focus of Paul's ministry, the one who should be the focus of our lives, the one who... who in whom alone we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Lord Jesus, we, we pray that we might be reminded of our absolute dependence upon you and the fact that we are completely sufficient before God because of you and that you have not just reconciled us, us to God and left us to our own devices to try to figure things out in the rest of this time we have on the earth or just try to please God, but you, you reside within us through the Spirit. May that be our comfort that we have your life within us, your grace actively working in us. May we keep you at the center of our lives. May we keep you at the center of our ministry. May we keep you at the center of this local fellowship, this church which you purchased with your blood. It's in your name we pray. Amen.